Welcome to another episode of the WBT Raft Bearing Trees podcast. For this episode, your three co-hosts will be myself, Adrian Bonnenberger, David James, and Michael Carson. And we will be discussing Mother Night by Kurt Vonnegut, which is appropriate given that we just discussed Deutsches Requiem. And we don't typically spend a ton of time reading books about Nazis. We don't collect Nazi memorabilia. We are not particularly interested in Nazis or find them interesting. They just happen to be extremely relevant in our, our current moment. And not just Nazis, but a certain type of fascistic pattern of delusion or self-delusion. Unfortunately, it's extremely current. And even more unfortunately, it probably won't get any less current as the months and years go by. So sadly, it is an appropriate subject for us to explore. And as it turns out, Mother Night by Kurt Vonnegut, no surprise, just a really delightful and humorous and sad read. So before we jump into it, Mike has kindly volunteered to give us a quick summary of the book, and then we'll take it from there. Thanks, Adrian. Great introduction to the book already. Uh, so this is the story of Howard J. Campbell. And as the story goes here is uh, when, when it opens up, he's under arrest or awaiting trial in Israel. And this is kind of styled as his confessions. Uh, you find out right away that he was one of the, if not the chief Nazi propagandist during World War II for the Germans. And you also find out a little bit about his biography that he was born an American, uh, born to American family in Germany. And his father was an American engineer stationed in Berlin. He, through the course of his life, married a German actress, became a famous playwright in Germany. And then as the war gets closer, uh, he's recruited, we find out through the book, by an American major to be a spy within the Nazi regime, according to Campbell anyways. During the war, he acts as the chief propagandist for the Nazi. And this is kind of the running joke, horrible joke in the book in terms of He's extremely good at what he does. He's the, the best propagandist there is, yet he's also supposedly American spy at the same time and giving codes to uh, the American intelligence. Uh, his wife is killed during the war or disappears during the war near the Russian front or Soviet front. And after the war, he is captured by an American Lieutenant Bernard O'Hare and they think that he's going to be hanged as a Nazi war criminal, but the major who recruited him intervenes and he escapes to America, to New York City. And so he lives in New York City for a number of years. And this is kind of where the book, his, his confessions walk us through these years. And in those years, he befriends a Russian painter who turns out to be a Russian or Soviet spy. He meets many of the, the leftovers of the, the American Nazi movement, but also in this nice twist, you see it's like, this ongoing American racial Nazi movement. It never really went away and it's beginning again. Uh, Bonnet gets really good about that. He meets his wife's sister and uh, also eventually the Bernard O'Hare pops back in, his, his original captor. One of the, the themes of the book is everyone wants him dead for different reasons. And the people who love him the most are the American Nazis who are portrayed uh, by Vonnegut as the, the height of ridiculousness in a lot of fun ways, but also dangerous in their own weird ways. He eventually gives himself up the, as we move towards the climax to a Jewish doctor who lives in his building. There is a great irony there is the Jewish doctor who's a concentration camp survivor himself as a child doesn't want any part of it. He's the one who doesn't want to take uh, or arrest Howard Campbell. His mom does though, she remembers. He's taken to Israel for trial uh, and the book kind of ends it seems that he's going to hang himself or he's going to take responsibility for his crimes, but he's also offered another escape because the major, the American major who recruited him as a, uh, a spy comes in on a letter and says that he was in fact a spy. Uh, and so that's kind of the very broad strokes of the book. Before we jump further into the details, the way Vonnegut wrote the book reminded me very much of the other great books that he's written. It was in Vonnegut's voice and there was a kind of sad, loving humor, whimsical humor in it. 
recognizable from the Sirens of Titan and very much so with Cat's Cradle and Slaughterhouse-Five. Cat's Cradle, I think, also has a spy in it. Spies are very interesting to Vonnegut for some reason. Maybe it was a Cold War thing that that was sort of part, part of the cultural, um, the cultural milieu, people spying on other people, but it being very irrelevant, like the spying ends up um, bringing people together. But what, like thematically, what do you feel uh, the book was about if it was about a couple of things? You guys have read more Vonnegut than me. Uh, this was just the third book by him I've read, along with Slaughterhouse-Five, of course, and Cat's Cradle. As far as I can gather, they're considered his best works. And this one was really great. I loved it. I like how he starts off at the very beginning and he famously tells us the moral. And it's very uh, metafiction and you don't know whether it's Vonnegut or the character Vonnegut or the character Campbell. But he says, you know, this is his only book where he knows what the moral is. And of course, it's a, a very famous line, be careful what now I'm going to screw it up. Be careful what you pretend to be because um, what you pretend to be is, is actually what you are. Uh, somebody correct me on yeah, that. So, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. Yeah, we are what we pretend to be. So we must be careful about what we pretend to be. Yeah, right. So it starts off, he's telling you, okay, this is the moral. It's got some of the other uh, flavor of Vonnegut books that I read, which it's He's commenting on the text itself. So it's got this uh, narrative structure that's sort of metafictional where you have an unreliable uh, narrator and you've got the author also inserting him into the story and providing commentary, but you're not really sure how to take it. And overall, the tone is very ironic. He's got a particular view of humans and of history and the way humans act. And it's, it's a very ironic, you know, way of looking at things also in a humorous way, but a bit detached. And yet at the same time with sort of uh, compassion, I think. So it, it was a really good book. Um, I, I really enjoyed it overall. Yes, I, I agree. It's one of my favorite, or is my favorite Vonnegut, I would say. I've read it many times over the years for a number of reasons. But it's kind of what we were talking about a little bit earlier before we started this, thinking about the problem of evil and Vonnegut's unique perspective on it. And I wanted to say, I wanted to jump in then and just say, I don't think Vonnegut really believes in evil. I, he doesn't have, he, he approaches it from an anthropological perspective. That's what he says often, like at the beginning of Slaughterhouse-Five. And he doesn't have the same sense of evil as when we talk about these things. And I think you're right, David, he has um, this certain love for all his characters, no matter how ridiculous and horrible, uh, which can be shocking uh, from how we normally view any kind of political discussion. I think that's kind of essential to stress as we, we consider the evil at the heart of this book, which is called Mother Night. Uh, and is a reference to the idea of evil in uh, Goethe's work. Uh, the, I also wanted to say, just because I think it's kind of funny, the, the main, main character in here, Campbell, is also in Slaughterhouse-Five. He has an appearance in Slaughterhouse-Five and tries to recruit American prisoners to fight on the Soviet front. Uh, and I was kind of that fascinating how his books kind of bleed together like that. And then the difficulty, as we mentioned beforehand, this is a whole book from the perspective of a Nazi propagandist and how do you make that person humane? How do you kind of wrestle with that and to understand their humanity or what humanity is? He somehow pulls it off, which is, makes this a very strange work in that respect. Unique in the history of literature, I think. One thing that surprised me, remembering this character from Slaughterhouse-Five is that he dresses him later on in the book like Billy Pilgrim when Billy Pilgrim goes, is, is captured and placed in the POW camp, he picks up a bunch of different clothes from different units and he's dressed like a, a clown and the, the British officers are sort of horrified to see him. The, the, the clothes he's wearing don't fit. Uh, he's described like somebody who belongs in a, a circus. And Campbell too is dressed this way near the end when he's being sheltered by the, the weird alliance of 
black national, I mean, there's, there is some weird problematic stuff in here. Like the, the black nationalist who's allied with conceptually with Imperial Germany uh, or Imperial Japan, uh, that's a weird character who wants to overthrow the system in a way that's, that's kind of caricatured. The grifter slash white nationalist, Dr. Jones, I believe his name is. Uh, but they dress him up like a clown. And, and I think there are these devices, like you're talking about, Mike, that are used to, I don't know if, if it's better to say that there are devices that are used deliberately to make him seem like a clown, which makes him seem human, or Vonnegut wants us to see him as human, but also recognize that what he's doing is evil. Maybe it's both of those things. I kept coming back to the dedication in my version. I read a 1966 version. I don't know if it's the original version or not, but there were some spellings in it and it was clear that it was definitely like one of the earlier versions. He says in the dedication, I would prefer to dedicate it, this book, to one familiar person, male or female, widely known to have done evil while saying to himself, a very good me, the real me, a me made in heaven is hidden deep inside. This book is rededicated to Howard W. Campbell Jr., a man who served evil too openly and good too secretly, the crime of his times. For anybody, regardless of a Nazi, that's an incredibly difficult thing to put, to put at the center of one's book for, for any audience. Yeah, I think, you know, you're both right. He's, he seems to be preoccupied with evil and, and humans, but also sort of the duality of people where is anybody pure evil or is anybody pure good? And I think he'd clearly say no. So he's kind of doing a literary experiment here in a way. I mean, it's all ironic. Some of it is a little bit wacky with those uh, assorted racists and bigots uh, he encounters later in New York. And, but at heart, yeah, I think it's a really important book where he kind of hits the nail on the head. I mean, I've read plenty of things about the Nazis. I mean, I'm not going to lie, but none of them have ever really been funny. All right. And he kind of, he pulls this off in a way where we have this strange character, you know, it's like a strange amalgamation here, the situation in general. So it's an American who moved to Germany as a child and uh, became German culturally. And then, you know, was also an artist. And just by chance, he found himself becoming a Nazi. But did he really do it because he believed in it? Or did he do it because he was recruited by the Americans to become a spy and pretend to be a Nazi? And so he was just faking it, but he helped out. So you have this weird situation, which, yeah, it is also kind of like a spy thriller in a way, or detective work. But at the heart, this character, Howard, Howard Campbell, is, um, yeah, he's got good and bad sides. I mean, he clearly loves his wife, and that's kind of the best thing about him. You know, he's something we should talk about a little bit more. You know, he's, um, he, he created this idea of the nation of two, and uh, they were both deeply in love and um, lived for each other, but also kind of at the expense of the real world and to the point where he just wanted to survive and would do anything to maintain his reality. It's kind of funny and it's very well-written, well-conceived. And I think, I mean, these are big problems still if we talk about the relevance of things going on today, you know, about who people really are, who they pretend to be, what they say and do for propaganda purposes and, um, yeah, there's a lot to dissect here. There are so many parodies inside of it. Like when you say that he he has this great love of his wife, I'm not entirely sure that it, it is that. I mean, he details their intimate encounters in great detail. And we know this, uh, he, he writes about it in great detail. We know this because he writes the 743rd entry, but it's not actually of him and his wife he has a very long running diary that he, he enumerates every time they, they have some type of, he has an encounter with his wife, he writes a diary entry about it. And then he has one in the, during the, uh, the book, which turns out to be other than it seems. And that's the 643rd episode. 
So we know that this happens very frequently and he writes about it at great length. But then he also says at the end, if I remember correctly, he says, but if I'd really loved her when I, learned, when I found out that she had been killed by the Soviets, I would have killed myself. That would have been a real love story. And then he, he rediscovers his wife. Let's put it this way to avoid any spoilers. It's not a spoiler to learn that he rediscovers his wife. Something else about the relationship would be a spoiler, I guess. Maybe we can reveal that too. But uh, then she actually kills himself in front of him and he still doesn't kill himself. So his, the, the love that he conceives of being a kind of perfect romantic romance love isn't that because the things that he knows he should do to live up to that schema, he doesn't do because he doesn't ultimately care more about her or about their love than he does about himself. Even though it is, it does seem, I agree, David, to be an important component of his life. The other thing I wanna say really quickly in terms of parodies is how fucking brilliant his parody is of the art that uh, Howard J. Campbell produces. So he's like a playwright and a poet. You learn that he was a successful playwright and poet in Nazi Germany in the 30s and they love his stuff. And then it turns out later on that a Soviet soldier finds his stuff and then reissues it in the USSR under the Soviet soldier's name and it takes on a new life of its own. And it's very popular in the USSR. But you can tell from the way that it's written that it's this incredibly schlocky, like kitschy, just not, I mean, to call it art. And, and he imagines in his head, he's like, yes, I was a great artist. Say what you will about me, but say that, you know, I died an artist. And then you, when you read the details of the things that he wrote, you can tell that it would just be like absolutely unwatchable today. Like one star, but the type of movie that does actually get made in Hollywood or whatever else, like there's, there's a big audience for it, but for anybody with any sophistication, it would just be absolute trash and almost unwatchable. And so there were so many layers of that type of critique that Vonnegut uh, writes into the book at, at almost every turn and every level. I just really enjoyed that. Pretty brilliant at how layered it is. I, I can't get over that with Vonnegut whenever I read one of his novels. Like they seem so straightforward and simple, but layer after layer of parody within parody, everything is like refracted perfectly. And like, it's funny, even that love conversation, thinking about Campbell and his love, and he's always kind of looking as love or art as a possible way out of the horrible things that he participated in this horrible world we live in as if they somehow justified or excused it. And different characters kind of speak to that and Campbell ironically undermines it too because he's aware of the ridiculousness of it at times as well. I, I just really love like the, one of the American Nazis, the, the Reverend Lionel J.D. Jones, DDS, DD, all the different doctorates he's earned over the course of his career. And it's describing this, like the rise like, of American nativist Nazi type figure. It mentions like there's an interval in his life for like 20 years where he married a rich woman. And then like everyone who's been, who researched into this man has to agree that he truly loved her and that he was sincerely in love and they can't fault him for this. And there's like this 20 year period where he forgot about all his horrible Nazi ideas. His wife died and then he's like, oh, uh, I have to research teeth again and how they prove racial this or that. This kind of insertion of the idea of love or goodness in what a storied criminal career and how it changes our perception of it. I love how Vonnegut both has it like both ways. It like undermines our need to like discount this person and say that they're total evil, but it also shows how we use that to excuse total evil. I don't know if that makes sense, but to me, it's like this weird double movement. And he does that with Campbell. He does it with all the characters. And it gets like David was saying earlier, that doubleness, he calls it a bunch of times schizophrenia in this book, like a schizophrenia that people are capable of, like the Russian agent of being two completely different people and how we reconcile that to ourselves and understand it and our willingness to be aware of that. Like how does love and death interact? It's like the basic question I feel like of life, you know, like you have death and you have love and how do you push the two together? And you have all these characters playing all these mind games to avoid that problem. And weirdly enough, Campbell's a character who's aware. That's kind of the horror, the monstrosity. He, he says he's worse than all the other Nazis and all these other people because he, he has the ability not to lie to himself. Like in, he chooses to. 
which is this weird moral argument that's unexpected. It always kind of floors me whenever I read anything by Vonnegut. Right, which we could mention too that there was actually three morals to the story he mentions at the beginning. There's what you pretend to be and all that. But then there's uh, the second one, when you're dead, you're dead. And then there's even a third one because these two aren't enough. It's make love when you can, it's good for you. He's kind of piling it on here, not just saying there's a moral to the story ahead of time, but there's three. And the first one is great, it's famous, but then it, it's even almost parodying the idea of morals itself because they're just a little bit cliched and you know vacuous. When you're dead, you're dead. And then make love when you can, it's good for you. But it, it sets such a strange tone for the novel. What hit me too, when, when we jump into the story, we have the first few chapters and um, it's just great. So we already have Campbell in Israel in prison, awaiting his trial. And we have these four chapters about the four prison guards he has. And they're all kind of, they're very different and also extremely strange characters that kind of set the stage for the bigger story we're about to see. So the first guard, I can't, I think he's a, a young guy who, you know, he doesn't know so much about the war. So they're chatting a little bit. It comes up where the guard mentions uh, Tiglath Pileser III, who burnt down the city. And uh, Campbell's like, who? Oh, you know, the Assyrian. Oh, that one. So he's talking about this ancient Assyrian king who's, you know, kind of famous in ancient history for his conquests in the, the Middle East. And then after that, Campbell says, oh, I've been thinking a lot lately about my old boss, Paul Joseph Goebbels, I said. And Arnold looked at me blankly. Who? He said. So they had the same reaction. Campbell didn't know who Tiglath Pilesar III was, but the prison guard, who's guarding a famous Nazi who was in a world war just 20 years previously, didn't know who Goebbels was. And that's also an interesting point because whenever he talks about all these real famous Nazis, he, also, he always uses their full name or their honorifics. He kind of reveres them talking about them, I noticed. So that, that's the first one. I already thought it was interesting because we have this um, duality. He doesn't know who an ancient king is, but the other guard doesn't even know who Goebbels is. And then we get other stories, but... Well, I was just gonna mention that it's immediately arresting that you have these little portraitures of four, three or four Israeli prison guards that are distinct. And one of them is very young and has no memory of World War II. Another of them was, and they're all Israeli citizens now, all Jewish. One of them had joined up with the Hungarian SS and was like sort of his, he, he was very proud of his service. I couldn't tell whether he was proud of his service and he'd done bad things or it seems to be implied in the text that he was like just sort of killing SS guys while he was there. But his, his motivation was to avoid going to Auschwitz. But he's like contemptuous of people who were at Auschwitz because he was able to avoid it by joining the SS. There were just very, I'm thinking now, I'm realizing that with what you, you're both saying that what's going on there is he's, he's using these characters maybe to prepare the reader for what's going to come next, which is to say, you're going to find, you're going to encounter people that you expect to see in certain roles with certain backgrounds, and they're all going to undermine your expectations in one, in one way, shape or form. They're, they're not going to perform the way that you think they should inside of a story. They're going to perform like humans, which is really interesting. And within the first you know, few, few pages, I was already hooked uh, and committed to the story. If you guys will indulge me, I wanted to talk a little bit about the writing, about the humor in the story, because there's just so many absolutely delightful moments. I'm always surprised by Vonnegut. One should come to expect these delightful moments, but they're surprising nevertheless. So I wrote down a few of my favorite quotes and I just wanted to read through them really quickly if that's, uh, if you guys are cool with that. Uh, okay, so this is one of the Israeli guards, Arpad. This is actually, this might be the, the guy that you were just talking about, David. 
Campbell asks if he'd uh, want to read through any of the transcripts of his speeches, of his sort of like propaganda. And Arpad says, I don't have to. Everybody was saying the same things over and over in those days. Which I, I like that. It's like, I, I already know basically what you said because everybody was saying the same things. Then Hitler has a take on Gettysburg, uh, the, the Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Hitler says of the Gettysburg Address, some parts of this almost made me weep. All Northern peoples are one in their deep feelings for soldiers. It is perhaps our greatest bond, which seems like such a great piece of Hitler bullshit, you know, like all Northern peoples. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, like, I like that part too. Just before that, Campbell gets permission from Dr. Goebbels. That's the thing. He always refers to him as Dr. Goebbels. But, and uh, Goebbels, it says, he read it, his lips moving all the time. You know, he said to me, this is a very fine piece of propaganda. We are never as modern, as far ahead of the past as we like to think we are. And this is the Gettysburg Address, the reading, you know, and, and they're going to read it to uh, the Fuhrer. Right, right. Let's see. So when he's, uh, when he's talking with the, the Soviet spy, at first, uh, George Kraft is the Soviet spy's uh, pseudonym. He says uh, he doesn't guess that he's American, and Campbell thanks him. And then Kraft says, you figure that's a compliment? That's why you said thank you? And Campbell says, not a compliment or an insult either, I said. Nationalities just don't interest me as much as they probably should. <laughs> as much as they probably should by a Nazi. Um, yeah, I guess so. And then uh, he also says when he's talking later about his, uh, I guess we're just digging into Campbell at this point, when he's talking about how he's able to survive, which is to say he has an inheritance from his parents. Say what you will about me. I've never touched my principal. <laughs> of all the things that one can say about Howard Campbell, he's never touched his principal. He's proud of that. One should never touch their principal, apparently. <laughs> when Jones reintroduces him to his wife, Helga, he says, who paid your way? Admirers of yours, said Jones warmly. Don't feel you have to thank them. They feel they owe you a debt of gratitude they'll never be able to repay. For what, I said. For having the courage to tell the truth during the war, said Jones, when everybody else was telling lies. <laughs> like, so good. Vonnegut is so good at this. My favorite, my favorite single piece of dialogue, and I'll shut up about this. Uh, I've got a bunch more quotes, but we don't have to read them right now is uh, when he steals his best friend's motorcycle, Hein, his best friend in, in Nazi Germany is named Heinz. And he said, Heinz says, Howard, he said, I love my motorcycle more than I love my wife. Howard says, I want to be a friend of yours and I want to believe everything you say, Heinz, I said to him, but I refuse to believe that. Let's just forget you said it because it isn't true. No, he said, this is one of those moments when somebody really speaks the truth. One of those rare moments. People hardly ever speak the truth, but now I'm speaking the truth. If you were the friend I think you are, you'll do me the honor of believing the friend I think I am when I speak the truth. I read that and I almost put the book down. I was like, that is such a perfect and beautiful piece of absurd dialogue. Like, I, I don't know. I just loved it. Yeah, there were a ton of great lines like that. There's one uh, towards the end when he's in prison, he actually meets uh, Adolf Eichmann. They're just chatting and, you know, comparing notes. And then he says, Eichmann made a joke. Listen, he said, about those six million. Yes, I said. I could spare you a few for your book, he said. I don't think I really need them all. And then Vonnegut, the author, or the narrator, says, I offer this joke to history on the assumption that no tape recorder was around. This was one of the memorable quips of the bureaucratic Genghis Khan. And, you know, it's just filled with these uh, lines that are, also very dark, very ironic, but somehow Vonnegut just pulls off the tone. And um, yeah, I've never read anything quite like it. It's funny how I can return to this book again and again, and it never stops being funny to me. I don't know how Vonnegut does that kind of packed layered humor. I mean, for me, the opening of the book, <laughs> you already quoted that bit about Tiglath Pilazar III and this idea that that Campbell should know him already and that everyone knows him. And this idea of how history works, I, in terms of like the disproportion of things, I always struggle to express it with Vonnegut, but he's able to kind of capture just the, the absurdity of what we think should be important and what we think has value and the reality of the situation. Uh, and he's able to kind of stretch that out for comic effect over and over again. 
don't know. I enjoyed as much as you all every time. If we go back to some of those prison guards at the beginning, there's four of them. All four are just, you know, very intriguing. The fourth one was uh, Bernard Mengel, a Polish Jew. And he says, you are the only man I ever heard of, Mengel said to me, who has a bad conscience about what he did in the war. Everybody else, no matter what side he was on, is sure a good man could not have acted in any other way. And, you know, it's another one of those commentary lines in the book that's kind of setting the stage for why people act the way they do and is it really good or bad. Then we also get to um, what Mengel did. He says, I, could, I got so I couldn't feel anything. Every job was just a job to do, not better or worse than any other. It turns out Mengel was also the guy who basically hung uh, Rudolf Hess, who was the Auschwitz uh, commandant. And he used this leather strap to tie down his feet and they hung him. And then the next day he used the same leather, or later that day he used the same strap to tie down his suitcase to his bike. We just get these crazy situations with, um, it, it's always um, makes you think. One of the things, and I wanna to return to this idea of the Israeli prison guards. One of the things that's simultaneously most intriguing and also most off-putting about the book on a certain level is how nationality and identity is identity, both national identity, ethnic identity, religious identity is uninteresting. It's a, like a red herring to, to Vonnegut. It, like this is truly a radical humanist project in a sense, because I think about the other hanging scene where his father-in-law gets hung and like gets hung very sadistically. Um, and he's the chief of police in Berlin, but he's described as truly being a policeman, you know? So he was interested in preserving law and order as he was before the war and as he is during the war, which is to say he supports law and order in a criminal state, but Vonnegut does, uh, you know, goes out of his way to mention that this is not, you know, his crime is participating in an illegal state, but one that that changes, that becomes illegal. You know, he was a policeman. So when the state is legal and moral, a policeman is doing legal and moral work. When the state is illegal and immoral, the policeman is doing illegal and immoral work. But there still feels like a distinction between being the police chief if you joined up during the Nazi time, which would probably implicate you in a certain way, versus he was the police chief for 30 years, like, He's a good police chief, whatever the case may be. Anyway, he gets hung by a pack of peasants and slaves. And the way that he is hung kind of makes it sound like they're the ones that aren't, you know, that aren't nice, even though he himself is, is you know, obviously he's not a nice person, but he, I don't know, he's not described as, as an overt criminal. The reason I'm saying all of this is, uh, or like he's not described as a Nazi, an ardent Nazi. The reason I'm saying all of this is the arc of the story to me seems to be one where you start off really wanting to condemn and judge Campbell. And the more evidence you're given by Campbell, who's a, you know, a great liar, a propagandist, but the more evidence you're given of his journey, of his details as a human, of his life, the more interested you are, or, or, or at least susceptible you are to not condemning him, to, to, to letting him off the hook somehow, you know, to, to, uh, to believing him, to believing his story. So that in the beginning, I don't know about the two of you. If, if one were to tell me, here's a story about an, Amer like an American Nazi and propagandist in World War II, I feel that like you start off with the Israeli guards and you're like, God, I kind of, you know, I hope they beat the hell out of him. You know, whatever they want to do to him is fine because he deserves it, period. They captured him, terrible person. But that immediately gets troubled. And over the course of the story, you come to see that Campbell is whatever else he is in his life, a failure, a coward, a thief, uh, a propagandist, a liar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's also essentially just a person who wasn't as good as he thought he was, um, which, is, which is kind of weird. And, and what, what a, I guess what a bold, humanist project. The last thing I'll say about the subject is in the very beginning, the thing that, that helped me orient myself to 
the story and I think gave Vonnegut the kind of credibility to write this story the way he did is his description of Dresden. So he writes, he says uh, of Dresden, the city was lovely, highly or ornamented like Paris and untouched by war. It was supposedly an open city not to be attacked since there were no troop concentrations or war industries there. But high explosives were dropped on Dresden by American and British planes on the night of February 13th, 1945, just about 21 years ago, as I now write. There were no particular targets for the bombs. The hope was that they would create a lot of kindling and drive firemen underground. And then hundreds of thousands of tiny incendiaries were scattered over the kindling like seeds on freshly turned loam. More bombs were dropped to keep firemen on their in their holes and all the little fires grew, joined one another, became one apocalyptic flame. Hey, presto, firestorm. It was the largest massacre in European history, by the way. And so what? With that background, you're ready to, whether you know it or not, kind of go with Vonnegut because you understand that his project isn't, an, if you're looking for some type of weird nationalistic telling or, or nationalism in general, then this is probably the wrong place for that. But it, it, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, if you're here for a nationalistic, a nationalistic story, if you're here to feel good about how we defeated bad people, comma, the Nazis, this is not a good book for you. If you're here to understand better how people can delude themselves and, and do bad things, um, but these are people who are also capable of doing good things, this is a good story for you. I think you're exactly right, Adrian. Um, Vonnegut was a very proud humanist. I, I saw he was the president or the leader of the American Humanist Association or something to that order. And yeah, it's clear he has these principles where he, he kind of looks at people in general and yeah, not based on nationality. And I think that's something like the, um, how do you say, Tralfamadoran uh, perspective, you know, the alien species, it's kind of detached, but maybe we get that. You know, side note on uh, Dresden, so I was looking at a little bit to see some of the reception of this uh, event and how it's been classified mostly by historians and legal scholars and if it's considered war crimes or not. And it's still controversial uh, who technically calls it war crimes. And I noticed that um, the numbers Vonnegut used in Slaughterhouse-Five, and I don't know if he said the same in Mother Night about, you know, the number of people who perished in the Dresden firebombing was 250,000. And that's actually the, just the initial number given by Goebbels himself on German radio propaganda. It's actually at least 10 times too high. And I thought that was an interesting perspective as well. Yeah, it's a horrible tragedy, probably war crimes by the Allied side, but also the numbers used is just used for propaganda. And you know, even at that late point in the war, there is Goebbels and you know, spouting out venomous propaganda like. Yeah, obviously it is horrible, but you know, just one more thing to accuse the other side of. Uh, yeah, Vonnegut doesn't seem to take sides, except yeah, the humanist side, and it's not about nationality. And I think throughout the book we do get you know both sides of a lot of characters. And Campbell, Campbell, we want to condemn uh, from the get-go, just knowing who he was, and he says it at the beginning, but he's created to be a sympathetic character. He's written with lots of humanity, and um, we don't get many details about the bad things he actually did. We're told he did them, but we don't get descriptions, and we just see a lot of his humanity. And the people who would supposedly be good, the good guys, we, we see a lot of their bad side. So it's interesting how he does that. And it's funny, your point about him using Goebbels numbers there, like, I always feel Vonnegut's writing about his own susceptibility, our own susceptibility to these trends, to becoming like this. And I think the power of it, of all everything he always writes is how easily we can, he himself thought along these lines and excuse certain actions and how we all can do this. And that to me is like the redeeming humanism is that he refuses to judge, but it also involves admitting complicity constantly in partaking in all these kinds of propaganda and all these kinds of um, 
decisions we make in order to justify all the horrible things that happen, the things that we kind of let slide. I just see from all of Vonnegut's characters, he's aware of his own susceptibility to that, like how he falls into it and why he can turn Campbell into a character. And I guess you would be turned off on Vonnegut if, if you refuse, if you see everything in terms of a black and white world, this would be incredibly offensive material, but he's, he's insistently pushing there. And that makes us rethink all the narratives of World War II, all the narratives of nationality and trends of history. And it's just people being people and they're consistently, insistently stupid and ignorant on purpose in some ways. Uh, and that openness to me is always exciting because it seems like there might be a possibility of movement away if you're able to recognize that. I don't know, I think we get overwhelmed by it so so many different times. I also wanted, if we go to like page 223, I wanted to mention the uh, totalitarian mindset. He has a lot of great observations about how we fall into this. And I feel it's not about any particular person. It's not about Campbell or, or Jones or whatever. It's He's talking about what it means to live and think in this landscape of ours. Laugh out loud funny to me is like the, when he has like all the various like racist Americans, you know, the bigots together. And he has the, the, the Catholic priest who's turned into a Nazi and the Black Fuhrer who's a Nazi and Jones and then the, the FBI agents arresting him. And the FBI isn't Jewish, it turns out. And he's like, uh, you, you talk about the Catholics and the Negroes, said the G-man, yet your two best friends are a Catholic and a Negro. And he says, what's so mysterious about that, says Jones. Don't you hate them? Certainly not, said Jones. We all believe the same basic thing. What's that, said the G-man. This once proud country of ours is falling into the hands of the wrong people, said Jones. He nodded and so did Father Keeley and the Black Fuhrer. And before it gets back on the right track, said Jones, some heads are going to roll. And to me, that is, is strangely funny in terms of just judging or looking at how humans think through things. And then he has right afterwards, this is Campbell. I've never seen a more sublime demonstration of the totalitarian mind, a mind whose might be likened unto a system of gears whose teeth whose teeth have been filed off at random. Such a snaggled tooth thought machine driven by a standard or even a substantial libido whirls with the jerky, noisy, gaudy pointlessness of a cuckoo clock in hell. The boss G-man concluded wrongly that there were no teeth on the gears in the mind of Jones. You're all completely crazy, he said. Jones wasn't completely crazy. The dismaying thing about the classic totalitarian mind is that any given gear, though mutilated, will have at its circumference unbroken sequences of teeth that are immaculately maintained, that are exquisitely machined. Hence the cuckoo clock in hell, keeping perfect time for eight minutes and 33 seconds, jumping ahead 14 minutes, keeping perfect time for six seconds, jumping ahead two seconds, keeping perfect time for two hours, and once ahead a year. And this to me is the most important part here. He says, the missing teeth, of course, are simple, obvious truths. Truths available and comprehensible even to 10-year-olds in most cases. But then he goes on to say, we all have filed down these simple teeth. And he includes everyone in the book, not just the batch of racists himself, his father-in-law who's yelling at the slaves for wrecking the blue vase. The, uh, the idea that how Nazi Germany could see no important differences between civilization and hydrophobia, which is such a strange line. And he says, this is the closest I can come to explaining legions, the nations of lunatics I've seen in my time. And he's implicating everyone here. Uh, and to me, there's this trend, the one for Vonnegut anyways, is that, and this, this gets back to your points about Eichmann, because I feel this book's a, like a response to the whole Eichmann trial in a lot of ways. Uh, and his, his famous excuse that I was just following orders. And it's made fun of at the very end. Like he thinks it's so clever. And Vonnegut's like, everyone says that. Everyone's just following orders. It forgives us all. Every single one of us at the end of our lives are like, we were just doing what we had to do. Campbell sees that it's not true. Like we had choices. And that makes him this weird moral character. He's saying, I made this choice. But he also has this other thing. The one thing that makes him different is he has a sense of humor. He's not Eichmann, right? He can see the joke of it. But then that's the thing with Vonnegut, like seeing the joke at the end of this book, I mean, what happens to Campbell? I mean, he's, he's a suicide. And so you have this very hard question about knowledge in this book and how ignorance allows us to, and all Vonnegut's work, how all these people are bouncing around the cuckoo clock in hell and perfectly 
okay with it and will justify their actions at the end of the day. And then you have Campbell and then how he puts himself in relation to that, I'm not sure. But one last point I wanted to say, like we always say like 1984 is like the best book of Orwell and all that about understanding the 20th century totalitarian mindset. Like for me, this is the book. Like this gets it to in some fundamental way, more so than anything else I've read personally. And I see that David wants to make a point. So I'm going to be very brief with this too. There is one part where, one point where you get to see one of Campbell's propaganda announcements. I wish I'd written it down. It was like a big block of text, so I didn't do it. Long and the short of it is we get very little of, like you both said, we get very little of what Campbell actually says and does. We get some snippets of poetry and plays and he's just horribly embarrassed about them as he should be because they're kitsch. But we only get one sort of block of like, this is the type of propaganda that Campbell was doing. And we do hear from him throughout the text, like things that Jones said uh, are, are, you know, or, or wrote, think things that he sees, pieces of propaganda are things that he came up with. But it's only in that one place where you see him in his words as a propagandist. And it's pretty clear and coherent, cogent shit, you know. It's Nazi propaganda, but he's right. It's not a kind of crazed man's accounting of the world that is just a conspiracy. There's something more to it than that. And of course there must be because to have the totalitarian brain is one thing, but that doesn't fully explain Nazi Germany. Like with Eichmann, you know, it's, it's, we weren't, it's not that people were just following orders. The totalitarian brain would, would, the account of the totalitarian brain would have you believe that everybody in Nazi Germany or everybody in the USSR or everybody in America or wherever you see totalitarianism is just doing this thing because automatically that's kind of how they're programmed to be. And while there are such people, that's not everybody. It is far more damning to be a person who doesn't have this type of brain and to nevertheless participate in the machinery of a totalitarian state as Campbell does. Right, Adrian, and I don't have that exact quote on hand, but I remember sprinkled throughout the whole book, we get many, many characters, you know, major and minor characters always referencing, you know, Campbell's words, everybody heard him in every country for some of these, you know, kind of loony um, fascist people in America, like he was their big inspiration. And there was even his father-in-law, the police chief, kind of, you know, listened to him every night, trying to check if he was a spy, but actually it ended up kind of bolstering his morale. And I think we even heard Goebbels himself was like, yeah, this is what we should be saying. And and uh, Dr. Jones, you know, got his ideas and it happens over and over again. We, we don't hear the actual things he said usually, but we hear how much he influenced all these bad people. And so then at the end, even though it was supposedly done to help uh, the allies or to help America, which incidentally, we also don't get any other information about. We don't know how he was helping, what codes were supposedly being passed or but you know we're supposed to weigh the two. He did enormous damage with all this uh, toxic propaganda for years and years, and inspired you know the bad guys to hold on tight even more. And but at the other side, he was helping the allies. Towards the end, then we get you know this fight with old Lieutenant O'Hare, the guy who actually captured him, and then um, he was released in secret but he found out where he was in New York years later and he, he came to basically kick his ass. And, you know, so when uh, O'Hare attacks him, or wants to just beat him, he didn't bring weapons or anything, but I'll skip over that part a little bit because I have this quote. Uh, we get Campbell saying the main moral of the story. He's, he's the guy who gets to say the good part, you know, to kind of tell us the right thing we're supposed to think. O'Hare loses the fight and Campbell makes his uh, soliloquy here. It says, there are plenty of good reasons for fighting, but no good reason ever to hate without reservation, to imagine that God Almighty himself hates with you too. Where's evil? It's that large part of every man that wants to hate without limit, that wants to hate with God on its side. It's that part of every man that finds all kinds of ugliness so attractive. It's that part of an imbecile, I said, that punishes and vilifies and makes war gladly. 
So this is out of the mouth of Campbell, the vile propagandist. We know the things he must have said for years. And he's fighting against this American veteran who was supposedly a good guy. But, you know, that's the line Vonnegut gives Campbell. And then I think O'Hare just, you know, vomits and um, makes a huge mess and can barely walk out. It's really incredible that this is the line Campbell gets in the end. I don't know what to do with that. I, I really don't because it's the first time I, I read through it, I was like, you know, I was just sort of caught up in the moment and I was just agreeing. I was just like, yeah, that's right. You know, and he's in part two because O'Hare is built up as the sad caricature of a man. He's the vet who had his greatest moment in World War II. He's a World War II vet. He's a hero. He captured the propagandists and somehow the snake eluded him. And since then, his life has been shit. He had a business partner for some type of weird post-World War II business. The business partner ran away with all of his money. He tried to start some other business. It failed. Now he's a dispatcher for custard trucks. He's just a failure. He's a fucking loser. That's what he is. Lieutenant O'Hare. With, and he with seven kids he can't feed. He's, his, wife, his wife keeps having children. He complains incessantly about this, which by the way, is a gift. You know, Having kids is a great gift to have. Um, but he's and, and, and him being pissed off about that makes you even more pissed off about him. He's like, because he, he's a loser because O'Hare is just set up to be a loser and he comes in to confront Campbell, like you said, David, and you're just, everything about the story is, is sort of set up for you to view Campbell as the hero in this and true to form, Campbell takes a set of uh, po like a poker iron and breaks O'Hare's arm. O'Hare has been drinking, so he's drunk. And O'Hare, uh, and then he delivers this sort of heroic soliloquy. O'Hare barfs, and, like creates such a mess that it is remarked upon for pages afterwards that like he, he befouls the entire apartment building somehow and staggers away. Campbell's a Nazi and a, a, a terrible villain. The, the reason, Mike, this book isn't 1984 is that even 1984 isn't 1984, you know? All of the tiresome fucking times you have to read in essays about how our country is turning into 1984 by like, you know, crypto conservatives, by closet reactionaries who, who are, you know, falling all over themselves to say that cancel culture is 1984 all over again, none of whom have read 1984. But if, if they're not capable of reading if they're not capable of understanding the extraordinarily simple and straightforward Orwellian message of 1984, like this book will have them throwing down statues of Vonnegut, you know, like they will hate this book because they will see themselves in it in the worst possible way. And, and not in a way that will allow them to critique themselves effectively and grow, but in a way that will make them loathe themselves so they cannot read it, they must reject it. And I think that's also why Mother Night is not a more popular book. Although it, I agree with you, Mike, it's a better book than 84. It's a greater book. Yeah, I think you're, you're onto something. I think you're both right. I, to me, it's the, it's the poison of self-righteousness that Vonnegut just attacks, like, and he sees it in people. And there's some trends in this book that I can see why it will never be popular in that same sense. Like that commentary on Veterans Day, like it's one of my favorite moments in any book ever when he's like, when uh, you have the, the sister who's come to New York City is watching this parade and where the girls are like throwing, uh, he says uh, metal dildos in the air and, and cheering. And she's like, is this uh, some holiday? What's going on? And then he says, this is now, um, this is Veterans Day. And Campbell's like, what? What's Veterans Day? Like it used to be called Armistice Day. And he's like, what? And he's like, he gets really upset. And he's like about the people, and this is Vonnegut coming through obviously. And he's like, why do the living always do this? They take away the people that used to be, the in honor of the dead, now it's about them. It's always about them. And he has the Americans that he critiques here with their winning war and the, the O'Hares and how they define their whole life in such a sad way based off of this kind of sophomoric, romantic, I'm killing this evil villain crap. And it's just incredibly sad, that character at the end. And I think Campbell sees himself too in that ridiculous, the stories that he created in his love um, early on in his life. To me, whenever I read it, like, especially in this last read through, the hero obviously is the, to me, is the, the Jewish doctor in the building, in the apartment building. 
who's always there helping all these people, no matter who they are. He's not holding on to this rage and anger like the other characters. And I love that bit at the end where he's, Campbell's like, arrest me, send me to the Israel. And then he's like, no, I want nothing to do with this. That's not me. That's not who I am. Um, and his mom pushes him and he's like, fine, I'll call Sam. Sam always wanted to be the hero. He wanted to be the greatest paratrooper, Israeli paratrooper. And then they actually attend the trial and everything. But I think for Vonnegut, it's like locating in that space that somehow, how do you escape that like ubiquitous self-righteousness that like poisons all that we do? And it's comic, it's comic again and again. And like you said earlier, David, the uniforms are the, the titles they give, right? The Germans have these long titles. He gives them like, sir, whatever. And the uniforms he makes and all the Americans are wearing these crazy uniforms. They just keep on adding doodads to them. And they're so proud of themselves and it's so pathetic and it's laughable. And I don't know, I laugh out loud every time I read this, like trying to, and, but it's also, you want to cry. You're like, this is people in so many different ways. I did have this one line, 154. If you quickly look at this bit, I know we're running on late on time here, but it's talking about how Campbell's like one thing he did beyond his propaganda for fun was he made a, uh, pop-up target for shooters in uh, for the SS and he made it like as a joke as the most like ridiculous absurd cartoon version of racism he could make up at the time and it was like the biggest hit in Germany it says uh, then he's looking right now at someone shooting it in the present and he's watching craft pop away at the target I understood its popularity for the first time the amateurishness of it made it look like something drawn on the wall of a public lavatory it recalled the distinct disease, twilight, human resonance, humid resonance, and vile privacy of a stall in a public lavatory, echoed exactly the soul's condition in a man at war. I had drawn better than I knew. I just love that line. When I think of like the now and the stuff, if you go like in any like these 4chan places and listen, and then everyone's like, how do these people, why do they wear these things? Like, why do they, they it's cartoonish, it's a joke. Vonnegut sees how this matches out the worst instincts in this and everything, the amateurishness and the ridiculousness of it justifies it. Hilarious and also very terrifying ways. Yeah, for me, it's always, it's, it's a great wake up call that like 1984 and everything is not elsewhere. I mean, it's there, it's in every one of us. And as soon as we forget that, then yeah, this is, this is where we are. I mean, that's, that's always the lesson to me, I mean we are all Campbell in our own ways. We are all doing these things, but that's a hard thing to take. Who wants to hear that, you know? And only Vonnegut can deliver it in a fun way that makes it not want to like cry over it all the time, I guess. That thing with the target, you know, he he drew the target in such a caricatured way. I, just, I recently saw the movie Black Klansman and it, it reminded me of a, a scene in that movie when the character's invited out by uh, some Klansmen to shoot at a horribly caricatured, you know, uh, black person in out in the woods and uh yeah it's the same thing and some of the characters in this book are just like that but uh, also mike when you were talking about the armistice day parade when they're strolling by after their lovely night and uh the the last line i had here written down the conversation uh was the sister you hate america don't you she said that would be as silly as loving it i said so you know he kind of it's about that nationalism thing again. And here it is talking about America in itself. Is it so good or is it so bad? But, and then with uh, the doctor downstairs, Dr. Epstein. So here we have a character who, what he was a young boy in Auschwitz and he's the downstairs neighbor. And his mom was there too, who's also present. And as a coincidence, there's also a neighbor who's a Russian spy out of all the people in the book, he's, he is a real victim, but he's the only one who, he doesn't want anything to do with it. He, he doesn't want to even hear about it. He's tired of people talking about being a victim and he doesn't even want to turn in Campbell when he knows who he is. He says, no, I don't care. I'm tired of you people. You know, he wants to move on and have his own life. So it's a, also this duality of, you know, who's a victim and who's not, what do we do with that? Yeah, I think I agree with both you guys about Orwell. I mean, I love Orwell, but he's he comes in a bit heavy-handed quite often. And yeah, 1984, I'm not sure if there's any humor at all in it, which that's his tone. But yeah, Vonnegut, I'd class as a superior writer. And the totalitarian thing, yeah, he totally gets right. Or at least maybe a sort of American fascism. You know, it's it's easy to talk about these days what what that brand could be, but 
it's something different from the other types we've seen. And it does include a lot of pathetic figures and this type of Americana. And really, I, I think Vonnegut just nailed it. You know, he hit it right on the head. One other thing that we ought to say, well, at least about the arc of the book, which I'd forgotten until we started talking, and that is Campbell goes to Israel looking for judgment. But then there's this kind of red herring subplot where he was only ever known as a spy to two people, his CIA or army intelligence handler, a guy with a pseudonym, and comically enough, FDR, apparently, according to the CIA handler. And the handler is presented so implausibly that you really are permitted to believe throughout the book that this could be a contrivance of Campbell's imagination until the very end of the book where what happens is, at least in the version that I read, his defense lawyer gets a letter, the very last letter of the day on the day before the final sort of uh, evidence is being presented. He gets a letter from the CIA guy with his real name and his serial number in his unit. And he says, yes, like I'm living now retired in Maine and I really did this. Uh, you really were a spy and you worked for the United States government the whole time at which point Campbell decides to kill himself. And the, that ending is also, I guess maybe that's the ending he deserves in a sense because he wants redemption because it, the way that he wants redemption, or at least he thinks he should get redemption is by going to Israel to be judged. But once it becomes clear that Israel could condone him or, or sort of judge him not guilty because he was working for the Americans and the story kind of hangs together and he's not going to get any judgment. He decides to judge himself in a very Hitlerian way. He says, no, only I can be the author of my judgment. I want a certain type of judgment myself, which I do believe condemns him as a villain, ultimately, even beyond the shit that he did as a Nazi, like in the logic of the story. I know we're, we're really long in the tooth here. We've been talking for a while. Um, yeah, Adrian, I, I think that's really the only way the book could end. I mean, I think it was well done. It's, you know, he went to Israel. He volunteered himself to go to trial. He knew he would be condemned. And then we had Eichmann there for the historical comparison. But when he would be, he knew he would actually get off. Okay, so he hung himself. But it just has a sort, a sort of a symmetry and... Um, Incidentally, there's a film they made of this uh, book, and I don't know if anybody's seen it. It has John Goodman, who's actually this um, CIA character. It's not bad, <laughs> but- That's um, really funny. I have to check that yeah, out. Yeah, and then I saw an interview with Vonnegut talking about the film, and it's interesting. He, he's such an, a good speaker who's very down to earth, and um, he was talking about the film, and it, this is his book, but he was referring to the character of Campbell by the name of the actor the whole time, which was Nick Nolte. And it seems like, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but he's talking about the story for a viewer. And he's like, Nolte is a, a propaganda. And it was fascinating. Like this is his book, but he's not even talking about his own character. He's talking about a real actor playing the character in the film. But yeah, that's Vonnegut. I, by the way, you guys know a bit more about him than me. I, what do you think about the Mark Twain comparison? You know, I, I was thinking about this and I really get a, a pretty good Mark Twain vibe about him. The kind of the parody, satire of American society and the dark view of things, but the humor. I mean, I, I really got some, you know, it, it seemed a lot like Mark Twain, something about him. I don't know. That's probably a thing, right? Definitely. I know people, yeah, he's, he kind of played up that comparison in his lifetime for okay. fun and different. And I kind of think his pers literary personality was structured in that way. I mean, he's from the Midwest. And I mean, I think there's a lot of great connections there. And I love what you're saying about the acting aspect of this. At the very end, he, he hangs himself, Howard J. Campbell, How Howard W. Campbell Jr. for crimes against himself, not crimes against humanity, right? And then I know that tonight is the night this idea of the world of stage, right? And you're performing and is he killing off a version of Campbell now to become something else? I think that's in this, that's back to the whole spy narrative back and forth. But one last thing for me anyways, like 
I just picked up on this read through, like in that note from the CIA agent, which I love that Goodman plays him. I think that's brilliant um, in the movie version. It, he has that paragraph, it's so strange. Like he decides to give up what he should never give up as a, a US spy, like the fact that this is one of my uh, clients or whatever. Uh, he says, dear Howard, the discipline of a lifetime now collapses like the fabled walls of Jericho. Who is Joshua and what is the tune his trumpets play? I wish I knew. The music that has worked such havoc against such old walls is not loud. It is faint, diffuse, and peculiar. I have this like circled and started like a hundred times. For me, like having read this book out and thought a lot about Vonnegut, and you're saying earlier, David, everyone's like that that kind of cliche he gives at the beginning, he gives three in a row, like this is the moral, this is the moral. He throws them out, these obvious morals that like everyone's like, yes, they have to be, then oh, it's this one, oh, it's this one. And we're pushed and pushed in this book about like these obvious things. And then he has, he does this in Slaughterhouse Five too, but there's a strange moment there where the CIA agent decides to come clean. And he says, it is a faint, diffuse and peculiar, some truth that wrecked the walls of his, his constructed life. Um, and I think that whatever those, that throwaway line that's not like funny in the Vonnegut sense, it's just kind of there. I think it's complete, it's very revealing to me about where truth might actually be in this book and where the hope forwarded away from the Campbell's and the modern experience of totalitarianism might reside. And to me, it's kind of like that burning ember that Vonnegut has in his books, if you're, if you're looking for them. Um, but that's my opinion on, on that there. And I think it's just like Twain, you're right. I mean, Twain had that same kind of outlook, like he immensely critical of human experience, but he never gave up hope in people. Uh, and that's, I mean, incredibly heroic to kind of put yourself there your whole life. The last point I want to make, and only because I just was listening to our last podcast, which listeners will have listened to at some point in the undetermined future before they listen to this one, presumably, is what Kierkegaard would have made of this character. I know, Mike, you've talked about Kierkegaard <laughs> a lot in the past, but the, the Kierkegaardian- add like three hours to this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, never mind. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is my joke for the ending of this uh, wonderful podcast, that one and a half hours flew by like, uh, like nobody's business, or one hour, whatever this ends up getting edited down to. Uh, so thank you both for, for joining us. <laughs> And we won't talk about Kierkegaard. That terrified to hear me talk about Kierkegaard. It's okay, it's okay. Yeah. To be continued. Yeah, save that for another time. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I enjoyed it, guys. Thanks. I'll be reading more Vonnegut for sure.